So we are back for another episode. This is episode 49. Oh my gosh, we're so close to 50. We hit 50 tomorrow, or not tomorrow, next next week <laughs> next we hit 50. Week. Tomorrow, we're doing week daily podcast now. Oh my god! Next week we hit 50. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so today we're going to start kind of a series dealing with medicine and illness and things like that. Yeah, in America. In America. Well, although I'll know, although, yeah, you've announced to me that you're going back to Egypt. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just the problem. I mean, we've said this before. Don't ever ask an historian, like, to explain something because you'll find yourself 2,000 years in the past. And they're yeah. like, to understand it fully, you need to look <laughs> back at blah, blah, blah. I do that all the time with my students. I'm like, we're yeah. going to actually head back a couple hundred years to really understand what's going on here. And I think that they've kind of just come to expect it now. They're just like, okay. But well, it's true. It's, like I was, yesterday was the first day of fall quarter for us at UC. And I was like, I was explaining menorial. I was explaining the collapse of menorialism and the middle during the Black Death on the first day of class. Yes, you monster! <laughs> and I started going backwards. Like I was like, and and I caught myself when I was tempted to go back to Rome and Roman land reforms. And I was like, oh man, it's the first day of class. I probably shouldn't be talking about this, but um. Well, yeah, you have I mean, a ten-week quarter though, too, so you really don't have any time. Well, for I, syllabus day, right? Yeah, no, I. I mean, I do part of the day. There's a little bit of syllabus discussion, but I just, yeah. And it's a Tuesday Thursday class. We have two holidays. We have Thanksgiving Veterans Day that kill our Thurs two of our Thursday meetings. Um. So, yeah. So you had no choice but to talk about this on the first day. Well, because I want to give them all the context they need to understand what the whole point was by the end of the class. I wanted them to understand what it was like to be a Florentine, not to cookie, a citizen of Florence at the end of the 15th century and what that meant and what it looked like. Um, I also kind of wanted them to start to be able to understand why it's different if you're kind of an urbanite in London versus living in rural England versus living in northern Germany. Because, I mean, it's I'm really tying geography. Well, that discussion's relevant to what we're covering today, really thinking about it geography, is. urban versus rural, and we're talking about the development of right. early medicine. So, yeah, you can always get well, into that kind of one conversation. One of their readings... Yeah, one of their readings this quarter is actually William Harvey, who talks about the motion, the heart. And he he's an English guy who actually gets his um, medical degree in Padua in Italy. And I think a lot of people forget that, that Italy for a long time is the epicenter of Western medicine. It is the place, the University of Bologna, the University of Padua. These, this is where people go to learn medicine. Well, it's um, the epicenter of everything for a really long time, right around that era, right? Art, culture, mm -hmm. medicine. Yeah. Yeah, well, see, you yeah. can always go well, back a should, couple hundred years. Yes. Well, I mean, it should be an interesting trip. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, well, let's, let's go ahead and start. Let's do it. Welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. 
and we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. So before we get into the history of Madison, I have to ask you, what's the weather like? You know, I'm so happy to report that we have a reprieve. It's been lovely. I actually walked outside this morning to let the dogs out like six o'clock in the morning. And there was a slight chill in the air, which I've never felt here. (laughs) It was slight, but it was there. I mean, it was in like the 60s, which was surprising to me. So, I mean, to go from the 90s to the 60s, it's a big drop. Right now it's it's 85 with a real feel of 93. So that's Whoa. a little toasty. But it's far better than it was a week ago, a month ago. We're I, I I'm seeing the light at the end of this disgusting heat tunnel. So So what you're saying is this morning it felt like pumpkin spice weather. I don't, I wouldn't go that far. This morning it was 67 degrees. It felt perfect. Right. It didn't feel like I needed a pumpkin spice, but it felt like, gosh, I'd like to sit out here and enjoy this normal temperature, you know? You like pumpkin spice lattes. I don't, know. <laughs> but you love Halloween. I hate Halloween. Are you like, what are you, who are you <laughs> talking to right now? <laughs> so fall is not your favorite time of the year. I love fall. That's so fall. weird that I you don't love like fall, Halloween. but you don't like fall no, things. I, I, no, like, I, well, I okay. I don't. The holiday of Halloween is terrible. I don't like anything ghoulish, um, despite being a historian. And yeah, I don't like that. I think you also think the colors are hideous, right? Oh, I hate the orange and the black. Yeah, I think we've yeah. We've covered this. Now you're remembering. I don't like Halloween. Yes. I like the fall season, though. I really do. I think it's beautiful out. Although I'm not going to get anything like that here. You know, I miss Pennsylvania fall. I mean, where you went to did your where you did your undergraduate? I would assume you would like pumpkin spice latte. Well, and you're just making a lot of assumptions about my gender and my race and about my personal appearance. Like, but you had Uggs. I, <laughs> Oh, I still have Uggs. You had leggings. I still have leggings. Did you have a North Face jacket? I absolutely have a North Face jacket. Okay, like, but I don't like. I don't drink coffee, so. Oh well, there you go. What about like a? What if you could get pumpkin spice, but it's not coffee? It was like it's something else. Are you asking if I like pumpkin flavored things? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I do. Okay. So it's the coffee, probably. It's the coffee. All right. Um. So, so yeah, I'm basic in every other way. Thank you for pointing that out. It's just the coffee that I don't. I was telling my students the other day, I was like, yeah, you know, I watch true crime shows and podcasts like the basic white person that I am. I guess I have to own it. At a certain um, our summer has been so weird here. And now it's that been it's really fall, hot right now, isn't it? Well, it got super hot right at the end. Like our... It was, at least where I live in San Diego, it's been unseasonably cool more than it's been unseasonably warm this summer. But now summer's over and it's heated up, although t- today it was weird and cool this morning. 
I don't know. The climate's so messed up right now. Who knows? Like you guys are gearing up for your fire season. Too. Well, supposedly, mm-hmm. you know. Hopefully, we've escaped it so far in San Diego for the most part. Hopefully, Thank we continue. You. I hope so. But anyway, the history of medicine. So <laughs> you joked in our I, kind of I love this topic. discussion. Like, I mean, I have I, a whole class on it this semester. Do you start with the Egyptians? You know, I, I didn't start with the Egyptians, no. Do you start with the Egyptians? No, I didn't start with the Egyptians. Oh, well. I'm going to start with the Egyptians. Go for it. So almost 5,000 years ago, <laughs> the Egyptians are cataloging diseases. And that's, I, I think that's a hallmark right there of the beginnings of something we could call the professionalization of medicine. When you start like cataloging stuff and try to organize it, there's something going on there. Um, 200 diseases. Now, some of them are real diseases and some of them actually weren't diseases at all in a modern context. But, you know, this Mediterranean kind of discussion about the body culminates kind of in Hippocrates. That I did. I did talk about Hippocrates. Right. So So I did go back pretty far, I guess. Right. So around the fifth century BCE. Hippocrates is around and he kind of is credited with the scientific study of medicine, although we have to kind of use, put a little asterisk next to that. He also um, starts prescribing something that's very similar to aspirin to his patients. Mm. And he comes up with the idea of the humors, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yes and no. Like, so the humors, so there are four humors um, and there are kind of, Aristotle, Hippocrates, and Galen are the three kind of people who contribute to the idea of the humors. And the humors dominate European understanding of the body for centuries. Um, And there are four humors. So there's black bile, there's phlegm, there's yellow bile, and there's blood. And these three kind of philosopher scientists, Aristotle, Hippocrates, and Galen, come up with the idea that when something is going wrong in your body, when you're suffering an illness or something, it is your your humors are out of balance. And you have to get those back in balance. And the way you do that is you purge to get things rid of things like phlegm or or yellow bile, or you you get bled to release like blood which is one of the four humors. And, and you know, as Aristotle loves to do, these uh, humors are tied to the elements. Um, so black bile is earth, phlegm is water, um, yellow bile is fire, and, and blood is air. Um, and they're also tied to kind of certain qualities like old age, childhood, um, parts of the body, um, the spleen, the brain, the gallbladder, the heart, as well as planets. Because remember, astrology is all it wrapped up in this as well. And I mean, it really dominates through the 15th century. It dominates. I think it goes all the way into the 18th century. Oh, yeah. I think there are yeah. colonial 
there are people who are practicing medicine in the American colonies who are definitely still referring back to these things. That's like Benjamin Rush going around bleeding everybody in the mm -hmm. 1793 yellow fever epidemic, I think is evidence of that carryover of this idea from, from, you know, the fourth century BC. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah, there was a great sketch they used to run on Saturday live. It was called Theodoric Barber of York <clears throat> and barbers kind of in the medieval period were also basically medical practitioners. Yes. Yes. That is and interesting. You would go get your hair cut. They would put some leeches on you. They might do a little bloodletting. It's not so wild. Um, and it really does dominate the way people view, um, view the human body. And it's so dominant that, um, it kind of prevents changes for a long time from happening. It prevents really any new inquiry. Because right? they think they've solved it, right? They think yeah. they're like, oh, oh, but here's the, the answer. Um, and there's another thing that's going on as well. As the Christian church kind of gets dominant and gains power across most of Europe, um, there's a real prohibition against things that you need to develop an understanding of the human body, including like dissection, vivisection, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's, there's a real ban on that. And in 1489, there's kind of a break with this because Leonardo da Vinci dissects a corpse. He famously dissects a corpse. And um, a couple of years, well, 50 years later, uh, Vesalius publishes kind of this atlas of the human body, of human anatomy, De Fabrica Corporis Humani, which is a real watershed moment because now we suddenly have, uh, you know, a, a map of the human body and we understand that there are th things we don't know what they do, right? So once you've kind of mapped out what the organs are of the body, you know, aspiring doctors are like, well, we don't know what that does. We don't know what that does. We don't know how this works. So it opens up this whole field of inquiry. Um, at the same time, we're getting other scientific advances, including the development of uh, Janssen invents the microscope. So now we have, by the end of the 16th century, we've got all the necessary parts for a real revolution in the understanding of the human body. Well, I think the other thing with the understanding of disease, which doesn't come along with the understanding of the human body is also a theory that's related back to Hippocrates. And that's the miasmic germ theory, the miasmic mm -hmm. theory of disease, right? This idea pervades medicine all the way into the late 19th century when it's replaced by germ theory. But the idea that the, there's bad air and mm -hmm. bad air is what causes people to get sick. So you have this idea that when the body gets sick, it has these different humors and you have to bloodlet or you have to, you know, drain bodily fluids in multiple different ways. And I'll let you go ahead and take that as <laughs> you want. Um, and, but then the idea though is like the way that you get sick is because of miasma, like a, a putrid air. 
And that idea of illness carries all the way past the Civil War mm -hmm. before so they figure out germs are the cause or pathogens, right? Well, I mean, so you've got the internal, the understanding of the body and kind of illnesses spring from kind of internal conflict within the body. And then you've got this. I mean, even though the miasmic approach is, is incorrect, it does have a kernel of truth to it, though, mm -hmm. because they are recognizing there's some external thing that's causing this to happen. And they're living in putrid filth. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, the, I mean we have this discussion all the time. God, it must have stank. <laughs> well, and they said it did. I mean, well, I don't know. There's somebody just did a, there was a peer-reviewed article about medieval hygiene that recently came out. And they're making making assertions that didn't, it wasn't really as filthy as we thought. I wasn't really convinced by the article. Okay. I'm not <laughs> convinced at all because every, I've not read the article. I'm sorry. I shouldn't yeah. talk about it. But if they're saying it's not as stinky as we say it is, I, everything I've read from that period that literally talks about dumping human waste mm -hmm. in the streets, there's absolutely no way that it didn't smell. Right. And there's absolutely no way that that wasn't getting people sick because you know, in any study I've done, like prison studies and stuff, cholera runs rampant in these mm -hmm. institutions because there's no plumbing. Mm -hmm. And they do understand that those diseases are coming from waste, but they think it's coming from like the the air, like the stinky air of it rather than mm -hmm. in other ways. But they do recognize, yeah, like we got to clean this place up because it's stinky. And if we get all the stink out, then maybe we'll get the disease out. But I mean, they're kind of onto something, but not fully. Right. I mean, I think that it's interesting that they do recognize it's something external. They just can't quite figure out what that is. But the whole thing about being exposed to the air can cause illness that persists to today. Oh, right. better put a jacket on or you catch a cult. N no, you won't. Right. Well, that's not how cults function. You may not have gotten this lecture as a little boy, but you can't, if you're a little girl, you can't go out with wet hair. Oh, yeah. Cause you're going to catch cold or pneumonia. Yeah. You'll get pneumonia. You'll come down with pneumonia. You go out with wet hair. <laughs> like, that's not how that works. No, it's I mean, not you at might all. get hypothermia. You might be uncomfortable. Right. But you are not actually going to develop like a cold. I mean, that's, and it's interesting how that persists, that kind of miasmic notion persists even today. Um, but, you know, you get this, so you get an atlas of the body, then you get a microscope. And then what I, you know, when I kind of teach a little bit of this, and I teach it a little bit this quarter, as I talk about the Renaissance, um, William Harvey in 1628 publishes this study of the heart and of blood. And it's amazing. Um, it is the first kind of sustained scientific study of the heart and what it does and how it functions. Now, Harvey used animal corpses to mm -hmm. kind of do this, which in and of itself is revolutionary if you think about it. Because these scientists are increasingly, they know it's hard for them to justify dissecting human corpses. So they go to animal corpses. But if you're dissecting an animal corpse and looking at the heart to understand how the human heart works, there is a recognition you're making about what humans are. That's true. And that you're trying to 
experiment in some way that shows that there's a that there's maybe a crossover between systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is I mean, interesting. So, right. So Harvey makes this this uh, publication, but what Harvey does that I think pulls him back a little bit to the medieval period is he looks at the heart and the way the heart functions and compares it to the way the earth is at the center. Like he compares it to a geocentric model and like the sun and, and all of this stuff. Then it just takes a a real left turn. Harvey may have actually had a heliocentric view. He, Harvey did. Harvey actually adhered to the heliocentric model, but he compares the way it's organized to the way the solar system's organized Mm -hmm. because he wants to see some kind of perfection there. Right. Well, so that's an interesting segue into the way that I kind of start the class is talking about the confluence of religion and medicine Mm -hmm. during this time period. There is an, there is a major attempt on behalf of a lot of, behalf of a lot of, you know, budding physicians or scientists, et cetera, that there's a huge crossover with their religious belief. And there's, there is an attempt to create like a, well, there's a, there's a crossover between God and man and human design and the planetary design and all of it all makes sense because it's all created by God. And then, you know, illness is also created by God. And you end up with this, I don't know, I, like I said, I call it like a confluence of religion and medicine. Um, and Protestantism, you know, this idea that, well, illness and death are just to be born humbly and submissively as God's will and judgment. Um, and the very first healing art that was often implored was prayer. Prayers, potions, blessings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oftentimes a, a doctor at your side was praying just as much as he was doing anything else. There was no, yeah. there was a, there wasn't a conflict between science, medicine, and religion for a long time. I mean, I think that changes for some people by the 1350s, though. So I think the Black Death comes along and wipes out 25 to 50 percent of people in the world. Um. Bad time. Bad time. And I think some people's reaction is, hmm, wow, um, this isn't working. Like, the church was assured us we would be protected of, by, from bad things like this, and it didn't work. Now, yeah. some people double down. This is funny. I basically talked about this yesterday in class. Like, some people double down and say, look, we're not religious enough. This is punishment. Right. We have done bad things we are being punished. Let's go burn some women and say they're witches. Well, and that's the form it takes in the colonies. I would argue in early American medicine, it takes that super doubled down conservative approach to say, and cotton Mather's kind of at the helm of this. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're not praying enough. We're not pious enough. But then at the same time you have, some people who are leaving and saying, look, this isn't working. The church is lying to us or they're misrepresenting what's going on. I mean, God should have protected us from this. Mm-hmm. Um, so you think it kind of creates a crisis of faith? I think it does. I think it's, I mean, it's, that's how I always teach the black death is that it is a moment of, uh, there's a crisis of faith. I, 
I think the trajectory of the Black Death to things like humanism, as well as the Reformation, it's a pretty short line. Mm-hmm. It's, I can understand if you've kind of been exposed to these. And the Black Death comes back again and again and again. It's not like it's just there for a few years and then disappears. Like it's a recurrent thing. There's still plague time. that exists. There is still plague that exists. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we get to the American colonies. And I know it's kind of a jump, but the American colonies are a very interesting kind of case study about understanding health. Would you would you agree with that? I, I agree a lot because people were dying in droves when they were coming to the American colonies for the first time. And the just the survival rate of making that trip, making it through winter, um, just surviving in 17th and 18th century colonial America is a feat. And you have this rampant spread of disease, you know, some that are new and some that are not. Um, they have difficult, difficulty dealing with the climate, difficulty dealing with... Um, they have, you know, problems with Native people, etc. And then there's a complete more than decimation of the population of indigenous people due to the bringing over of European diseases. And it's a, it's a complete mess, I think is the best way to put it. Medically speaking, the colonies and the meeting of these two cultures, people is, is a complete and utter disaster, medically speaking. So you get these epidemics that pill pillage Indian populations. Yeah. And I said decimate, but that indicates that only about 10% of the population died, but it's more like 90% annihilation. Right. Annihilates is more, but I mean, you also get periodic illnesses that run through the colonies themselves. Smallpox is this kind of recurrent villain, right? I mean, it Mm -hmm. comes back again and again. And so you get these settlers, these colonists from England, and they bring over medical knowledge from England with them. And one of the, for smallpox, I was reading cures that Uh the colonists thought worked. Oh, yeah. Um, One of my favorite is that you needed to burn a pot of toads to ash. Yes, I saw that one. And then eat the remains. Yes, that works every time. I think it's like... If you can survive burning a toad and then eating it, you're made of pretty strong stuff. But, you know, so there's the thing, like there's this, again, like this overlap of religion, medicine, magic, uh, all this kind of stuff. I think that overlaps in a really interesting way in the 17th century where it's like it's kind of impossible to ignore how there was religion plus superstition plus some advancements in medical knowledge. And they all kind of just were flowing at the same time. And, you know, you would get things where it's like, oh yeah, that actually works. And that makes sense. Like early smallpox inoculation advancements in that. And then it's happening right alongside burn and eat a toad. There's a lot of, and you know, it's interesting in the context of what's going on right now with our current pandemic. It's like, there's a lot of, 
ideas out there and like some of them are right and some of them are really wrong and it's hard to get everybody on board with one idea you know you might have told somebody you know hey there's this whole inoculation thing going on where you infect yourself with smallpox and then you can get over it quicker and people are like are you kidding me like i'm just gonna eat the burned toad and mm -hmm. I can't help but think of like, I'm just going to take the horse dewormer. You know, I mean, I, there's a lot of similarity and I'm not trying to be funny. I mean, I just think that there's like a, there's a similarity. And then there's also a continuity in the way that people address or deal with disease or some, a scary moment like this. Well, I think people want something familiar. And if it's too, if it's radically different from what they're used to, it's a much harder sell for them. Mm -hmm. So you get these remedies. And I think that's the thing is I think ivermectin in one way is from a long line of these remedies. So one of the things the colonists start to do is they bring this knowledge from England with them, but they are in a do, new world, right? They are in a place with different things, different foods and animals and plants available to them. They're also on trade routes. And I love how remedies start to incorporate rum much more you regularly We've talked about this right in the colonies yeah because there's this yeah. like wide availability of rum and then if you go inland a little bit it's going to be whiskey and and it's everywhere mm -hmm. right and so you get to start you know this article and i think you probably read the same one from harvard where oh, this yeah. historian's like arguing you can see the shift because suddenly you get recipes that call for lemon lime sugar rum that indicates a strong connection to the caribbean sounds just like a cocktail to me it sounds like a cocktail it actually <laughs> i mean here's the recipe it's a solution of lemon or lime juice mm -hmm. loaf sugar cordial water which is a liquor mm -hmm. um and then salt i wonder how much salt because i bet it was just a little bit of salt just a little tiny bit. So it was probably a tasty little, it was almost like a daiquiri or something. Um, Sounds good to me. <laughs> like, But it was to treat fevers and stomach and throat ailments. You wonder how much rum was in it if it was just like knocking people out. Well, I mean, we've talked about this. See our episode <laughs> about, talked about the how drunk people are in the colonies. I think it was probably a lot. I mean, it's that's the thing is, what's your day, what's your go-to cold medicine even today? NyQuil. NyQuil, why? Because it knocks me out. Because it knocks you out and you sleep <laughs> through the illness. Like, I don't know if it really does anything to treat the cold other than just knocking you out. No, I do. And whenever I start getting sick, I, I say, well, it's time to bust out the sauce. Like, oh, yeah. I just like, chug that stuff and yeah, just go it's, to bed. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it's one way to deal with kind of temporary ailments. Yeah, it is. No, just it's true. Inebriate yourself so much that you just sleep through it. Yeah. Um, but we get to, you know, this. So the American colonists start to develop their own medical practices. And, and these are these are often informed by in currently existing indigenous practices and medical knowledge brought from African societies. Mm -hmm. So you have this overlap of these three different cultures for the very first time interacting with one another in this, you know, for the Europeans, this new place for the Africans in this new place. And they do, they start to come up with new ways of treating things. They're kind of 
sharing knowledge, medical knowledge back and forth. There's watching, okay, you eat this root or this plant or you drink this tea. And there becomes this idea that medicine is um, kind of dependent on geography of where you are, you know, that you there are different ailments in different regions and there's different treatments for different regions. And that makes that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so it, generally hot, humid climates are are viewed as de- del- deleterious to your health mm-hmm. uh, to for white people. Right. Right. I mean, so Thomas Jefferson famously like Thomas Jefferson bag of bad and good ideas all mixed up famously like believed or maybe not famously. I don't know if people know about this. Thomas Jefferson believed that if a white person moved to hot, humid climate over time, they would eventually darken and become black. Right. Which is interesting. I mean, the idea that he sees. I mean, I think you get a tan. Race is not immutable. Mm-hmm. Um, but race is a big issue here as well. Um, and I think it's an uncomfortable discussion that a lot of people shy away from. I know when I took kind of colonial history classes, it wasn't discussed. When I took kind of 19th century stuff, nobody really wanted to talk about this. But I think it's an interesting question. Enslaved people are means of production for those who own them. Hmm. And they, but they are also humans, which means they have health requirements. So what does medical professionalization look like, or what does medicine look like in places where slavery is dominant, like the American South and the Caribbean? I mean, is there, do we start to get a divergence from New England versus the Southern port of the colonies as slavery really shifts to the South? Well, I think it depends on the era. So Mm -hmm. I would make the argument that after Congress bans the importation of slaves from Africa, which goes into effect in 1808, there becomes a really intense need to keep the existing slave population healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And and in the, the starkest and most vile of terms, to keep their property in working order. And that's, I hate that discussion. I hate that language, but like, it's the truth of the matter is like, there isn't some benevolence of like, Oh, well, we want to take care of people. There's, there's this idea that they want to protect their economic interests. It's expensive to replace them. And it's, and it's, and and it's it's not in, it's not possible anymore because there's no more, there's no longer an importation. So the, population of existing slaves in the United States has to naturally reproduce itself. And in order to do that, they have to keep them healthy. And so I think that medical advancements start to take place, more experimentation starts to take place in order to figure out how do we keep people alive? Mm-hmm. That, that conversation wasn't necessarily taking place in the colonial era. And it certainly wasn't taking place for the enslaved because that's another thing is like death rates for everybody in colonial America were insanely high. The infant mortality rate was really high. The maternal mortality rate was really high. And, you know, most people weren't making it past their thirties. I mean, there were just a lot of people dying left and right all the time. They were completely surrounded by death. I think, um, you know, if you look at like epithets 
on graves from the colonial era. There's one that I have that's like the poem that would always appear on there. Lament me not as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so must you be. All flesh is mortal, you may see. Everybody was just dying all the time. And there was like this acceptance of it. Like, oh yeah, people getting sick, people dying. And I think that the attitude toward that changes. Eventually, once, you know, the importation of slaves has to stop and, you know, I mean, I think that there's a, the huge connection there, but I would say in the early colonial era, there's a huge acceptance of death and it's providence. And again, I think it's that relationship to religion that I was saying earlier that kind of dictates the way that they approach disease or approach death or approach treatments, because there's this idea that, well, everyone's just kind of dying. So there, there isn't, I don't know, I don't see huge shifts in the way that they try to preserve life necessarily until a little bit later. Right. But well, so we know that prior to the kind of ban of importation, uh, um, so we have slave doctors and slave doctors are doc are medical practitioners who are slaves themselves. What does it mean to be a medical practitioner? Well, so they were, they were recognized as having expertise in their community. Okay. Um, and they were gone. So I would argue with midwives are the same thing. And yes. we can kind of move to a discussion of midwives after this, because I think it's another fascinating moment. But I, I would say, first of all, you have, um, many of the people who were, um, captured in Africa and then forcibly brought over to, to become enslaved people many of them didn't travel empty handed. Many of them took things with them. So we get West African plants that are brought over Mm -hmm. and had medicinal value. Mm -hmm. And you get, you start to get people within these communities who have knowledge of how to use these plants, how to treat certain conditions. I mean, their body of knowledge was as complex and rich as that that had developed in Europe right? That, that you use certain remedies and plants and concoctions to treat certain illnesses. And, and they're allowed to do it early on. Well, because it, it, you know, they, it it was a way to kind of let them do, you know, sure, because it doesn't seem to hurt anything. But pretty early on, they start to, there starts to be a fear that if you're kind of an expert about these plants, you may also know how to poison. Well, and that's why a lot of people who were recognized in their communities, men, excuse me, women and enslaved people who were recognized within their communities, they start to get ousted and there become Mm -hmm. bans where enslaved people are no longer allowed to practice medicine. And this is in the early Republic era. 17, well, 1748, the Virginia, um, House of Burgesses forbids. Yeah, that's even earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Any Negro or other slave to administer, quote, any medicine whatsoever under pain of death without benefit of clergy. So now they're saying you have to have a member of the clergy there before this can happen. Mm. And you could only be a member of the clergy if you were white. Mm -hmm. So there has to be white oversight on this. Um, However, Exceptions were made in that 1748 law 
for slaves treating other slaves. But even that, so that's when, what I was referring to in the early Republic era is even treatment of other slaves is banned. Right. Yeah. And so I think we should talk about smallpox a little bit because the treatment for smallpox ends up coming from African medical knowledge. Yep. Sure does. So how did they treat smallpox during the, the Boston epidemic in the 17, was it 1723? Uh, 1723, the Boston, do you have those notes handy? I do. You join, I have my, I have my midwife notes up already. Oh, I'm it's sorry. going to midwifery. Um, um, the, uh, the, the Boston epidemic, um, you know, I think is an important thing to, to discuss just quickly. Um, so I would like to point out though, first of all, that there's smallpox epidemics all the time. Um, and there are, it's not just, you know, you know, to one, one year, one era, but so the Boston smallpox outbreak is 1721. Uh, that's when they experienced the largest outbreak of smallpox and you had over half of the population in Boston infected with smallpox. The population was a little over 10,000 and close to 6,000 people were infected. Um, so you had this, this huge outbreak. And um, this is during the era of Cotton Mather. And, you know, there were, he had, he knew somebody who was enslaved. I think it was his slave um, who came out and said, Hey, I know what, how we treat smallpox where I'm from. Um, you know, we do this procedure where you infect somebody who's not infected purposely. Um, you go, and we've talked about this clip before, right, on the John Adams um, series of how, ino how early inoculation worked. And it's not vaccination. It's inoculation, which is different. And so what they would do is they would take somebody who was infected with smallpox. They would take one of the pustules and they would scrape it and then cut a hole in your arm and then in purposely infect you with smallpox and you would get sick, but not as sick as you would if you'd had like a natural exposure outbreak of it. Um, and then you would recover and then you would end up with a lifelong immunity to it. Well, it was because it would go into your blood instead of your lungs. Right. right. And yeah. by the time the, infection oozes out of your body, it's not as big of a viral load is what mm -hmm. I discovered. Cause I had to look that up. Cause I'm just like, I don't understand how this works. See, there's a great depiction, visual depiction of this in the miniseries John Adams on HBO. Yeah. Which it's I think we've mentioned before. It's good though. I show it in class. It's just a couple minutes long. You can look it up on YouTube, look up John Adams, smallpox. And it's like a three minute clip from the show. And it is, it's really good. What I want to point out, though, is think of how what we were talking about originally about there's this idea that there's these humors in the body and that if there's something wrong with you, you need to drain your body. You need to drain your body of blood, of pus, of urine, of feces, of semen, whatever. Right. Like they're all the things that you need to be draining your body of. So that was the idea. That was how medicine worked. And so you come along with this other idea, like actually you should introduce a disease into your body. That freaked people out. 
that, went, that was completely contradictory to everything they thought they knew about medicine and the fact that it was coming from somebody who was enslaved. There was little interest in people wanting to become inoculated. Well, I mean, so here's the thing, and I want to segue a little bit to midwives because I love talking about midwives. So here's the thing, I think enslaved people who practice medicine and women who practice what we call midwifery. And there was some overlap there. So you and I, you actually end up in, with enslaved midwives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of knowledge there. And one thing that starts to happen at the end of the 18th and across the 19th century is there's an exclusion of those two groups. Yes, in and medicine. This is, and I would argue the African-American community in the United States has a very complicated history with medical professionals. Yes. And I would say it starts with this initial exclusion of kind of their own doctors. Yeah, not being able to practice medicine right. or being heal their own communities. From doing that. Um, and then the later transition that happens in the 19th century where now you have doctors that are serving slave owners mm-hmm. by treating. Yeah. And it's not people. treating the, the human. It's not treating right. the individual. It's treating them as property. Right. And right. and like, so anytime they were examined or there was a diagnosis or anything, they wouldn't even know their di- diagnosis. The medical report would automatically be given over to the owner of the person. And it's, there's a huge exclusion from treating your own community and being treated, I mean, you know, having any sort of open communication or knowledge or understanding of what it is that was that ailed you, there was no there was no respect to to offer that. So yeah, there's this really fraught relationship between medical professionals and the black community that stems all the way back to the colonial and early republic era. So midwives. Um, one of my favorite books I read in undergraduate and then graduate school, I read it undergrad and then I came back and read it again in graduate school, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Um, she is so who Hillary and I are both academically related to now. <laughs> it's true. That. I don't know about that. It's true. That's what they would say in the academic That's community. That's what Mark would say. It's like our um, academic grandmother. Right. Um, So Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, she's an historian. She's at Harvard University. She writes this book called Midwife's Tale. And it's a micro history. She takes this diary that Martha Ballard, this woman in New England, had kept for 27 years. And if you just kind of look at the diary and don't pay much attention... It just doesn't seem to talk about anything that's really important. When historians had known about it for a very long time and kind of just like, meh, meh, boring, boring, looked it over, looked it over. Yeah. So Ballard goes back and starts to look at this. Ulrich goes back. And she finds amazing points of of detail. Like this, this, this woman who lived kind of in rural New England um, she lived uh, near Hall- Hallowell, Maine, uh, in the Kennebec-, Kennebec River. 
um, not really close to the center of anything going on. Um, she actually finds out how virtually everything important that happens between 1785 and 1812 is somehow reflected in Ballard's writings. But we also get this super complicated yet very richly detailed view of A, what it's like to be a woman in this period, and B, what it's like to be a midwife and what that entailed and all the people she treated. So over 27 years, she delivers 816 deliveries successfully. And this is at a time where childbirth is still a risky, uh-huh. risky endeavor. Um, and we just get these, her husband's kind of a loser. Um, he's uh, not a loser. He's kind of he a loser. So? Well, okay. So her husband, one of the, his, her husband had odd jobs. Yeah. One of his jobs at one point is to be a tax collector. Yeah. And the way tax collecting worked at the time was if you were like given the list of taxes you needed to raise, and if you didn't come back with that much money, you were on the hook for that money. You got arrested. Yeah. And so he he ends up in jail. Yeah. Um, Okay. What about this? A couple of Ballard's children are not, are ingrates. They're awful. Her children are awful to her, and they take major advantage of her in her older mm-hmm. age in her when her husband age. is in jail. Right. Um, to me, what I like about it is like she's the successful one in the family. But she's, she's a well respected one. in the community. Very well respected. Um, people look to her for advice not, on things. Yeah, and not just childbirth, right? She it's, attends people who are sick in the community all the time she's a doctor right i mean she is a doctor she a childbirth is the most obvious thing she engages in but that's not the only thing she Mm -hmm. engages in Mm -hmm. um i really would recommend if you want to read something that's pretty short easy to read but really wonderful read midwife's tale by laurel thatcher i disagree with you on the easy to read i found it oh you think it's it's not I love the book and I assign parts of it for my undergrads, but I, I have a hard time getting through it and I'm just being honest. Hmm. Now don't, I mean, as far as history texts go, I'll say that it's one of the better ones, but I think historians are awful writers. So some of them, most of them, most history books I've read are really not good. Um, And that's sad, but it's true. But then what starts to happen is Ballard by the end of her life, well, actually most of her life, she's increasingly competing with a group of men uh-huh. who have a new way to deal with healthcare. And they suck at it. They don't know what they're doing. They kill people. They kill. There's a there's one anecdote that I love from the book, and it's it's in her diary, and she's talking about how she's attending a woman who's in labor, and the male doctor comes you know, busting in and gives the woman opium Mm -hmm. in the middle of her labor and like puts her to sleep. And he's like, well, this will stop the pain. It's like, no, she's in labor. She needs to be in pain and pushing the baby out. Yeah. And then he leaves and he's like, okay, you're feeling better because you're basically passed out because I just drugged you up. And she stays behind and waits and waits for her to come out of this drug induced stupor and finally is able to deliver the baby safely. But mm-hmm. doctors 
men, male doctors had no idea what to do with the women's bodies. They had no idea what to do with childbirth, child rearing, postpartum, nothing. And they start just waltzing in and saying, well, we're in charge here now. And they don't know what they're doing. Well, and it becomes pretty rapidly in the 19th century, it becomes unseemly for a male doctor treating a woman to even look at her genitals while he treats her. Right. So they put this sheet over and he has to kind of play touchy-feely to figure out what's going on. And they don't know what they're touching and feeling. And they don't know that. And they're, you know, it's, I mean, you kind of wonder, maybe veterinarians would have been better doctors for women than these. Right, because they've at least, yeah. They had some experience, some real practical experience. Um, but th- that's not, I'm not suggesting women are animals. Yeah, I didn't like that, but yeah, I understand what you're saying. The veterinarians weren't kind of constrained by these ideas of modesty and what was proper. Right, and, what right. and they were bringing lots of animals into the world and understood sort of how it worked. Whereas these male physicians, and I'm putting little air quotes up right now, well, they didn't know their ass from their elbow. Well, and their training was abysmal. Well, they didn't have really any training. They didn't really have any. Anybody could like, I could just put a hat on and move to a couple of villages up the coast (laughs) and call myself a doctor now. Right, right. And we get it periodically. We get these doctors, doctors with the quotes, who get chased out of these towns because they're kind of revealed to be frauds. They're quacks. Um, But there's this, and there's, so there's a real reticence to embrace medical professionalization initially, but pretty quickly, unlike places like England where midwifery is still a thing, for white Americans in the early republic, midwives become increasingly marginalized. Mm -hmm. And they actually, to have a midwife in the United States by, I'd say, mid-19th century is to mark yourself as non-white or of a very low class. Mm Which is so ironic because they're the ones who are probably getting the best care. Yeah. You know, they, they thought it was like in vogue or something to bring a man into the equation, but he didn't know what he was doing. So let's, let's finish up with Benjamin Rush because he's kind okay. of the poster child for the American doctor. Yeah, well, he is. And he's, I think he's the only physician who has like a statue dedicated to him, right? And there's a medical school named after him and all this. I mean, Jonas Salk has a statue, doesn't he? Maybe he does now, yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little about old Ben. Well, um, he is most famous for his treatment of yellow fever in Philadelphia in 1793, epidemic of yellow fever. And um, he is, you know, this kind of brilliant physician who is trained i mean he ends up going to princeton what was called the college of new jersey at the time but he was the youngest person to ever graduate from princeton he graduated at 14 years old he decides on a career he is kind of yeah he decides on a career of medicine he apprentices with um uh with famous doctors across the atlantic so he goes to university of edinburgh um, he gets his medical degree and 
it's rumored that his medical education was paid for by Benjamin Franklin, um, who was grooming Rush for, you know, a position in the, at the College of Philadelphia. He's very well connected. Um, you know, Charles Wilson Peel paints him. Um, and, you know, if you have a portrait by Charles Wilson Peel, you're a big deal. Um, he had a long career in medicine. Um, he taught hundreds of medical, thousands of medical students, but he was teaching based off this idea that the best way to treat anybody who was sick was to bleed them. And he had this theory of disease or sickness. And he said that all diseases are born of one fever. And what you really need to do is to bloodlet in order to cure people. He also, one of his treatments, and I don't remember what illness it was for, he prescribed people going in a rowboat out in the middle of a lake or a pond. And just sitting there? And just sitting there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay, so he's also known as the father of American psychiatry. And he does actually have some innovative treatments for psychiatric illnesses that are far different than what was going on at the time. He actually thought you know, okay, this, this disease is something with the brain and you, it can be cured and we shouldn't be locking these people away and we shouldn't be putting them on display in what they called idiot cages in the middle of the town square. He actually did have some innovative practice when it came to mental health treatment. Um, but when it came to the physical health of treating people, he was bleeding them to death. I mean, to the point where, (sighs) He has this theory, I'm bringing up my, called depletion therapy. So I'm going to read a quote from him. He says, I preferred frequent and small to large bleedings uh, in the beginning of September. And he's talking about at the height of the epidemic. But toward the height and close of the epidemic, I saw no inconvenience from the loss of a pint and even 20 ounces of blood at a time. I drew from many persons 70 and 80 ounces in five days. He estimated that the average person contained 25 pounds of blood and recommended that 80% of it be removed. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yikes. And so he kills a lot of people during the yellow fever epidemic. Mm -hmm. He kills them. It's not yellow fever. He bleeds them to death to the point where there are people writing in the local papers and stuff that it stunk so badly outside of his house and that there was you there was like puddles, piles of blood outside of his house in the yard Ooh. and that there were constantly flies swarming Benjamin Rush's front yard because of the amount of blood he was dumping out from people on a daily basis. How's that for a good detail? So, I mean, it, it just points to, even in the 18th century, there's this moment where they're, you know, you've got the, these physicians who are doing things that appear more modern to us, but they're still kind of wedded to these older ideas. They just can't get rid of them. Yeah. But that changes. And that's what we're going to talk about next time, right? We're going to pick up with the probably the most pivotal event in medicine in the United States, at least, is the Civil War. 
oh, okay, we're going to go all the way to the Civil War. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of our first big, I mean, we're going to talk about other things, but that's kind of our first, I mean, okay. war changes the way the United States deals with illness and the way medicine works. Yes. Through the Civil War to the Spanish-American War to the Great War to World War II, it really changes the way medicine is dealt with. Mm-hmm. I'd um, like to do an episode, if we may, on on obstetrics and gynecology and, and the development of that field in relation to slavery. I mean, I think that that's yeah. a really important thing to talk about in the 19th century. Yeah, as well. I mean, that's and that's like I said, I think it's the uncomfortable conversation that needs to be had is like, what are the connections between the shift from enslaved people kind of being left to their own devices for their own medical care? versus now the slave owner is going to kind of mandate medical care from the person they choose, but it's not for the benefit of the person. It's for the benefit of the slave owner. Exactly. Um, and, and there are medical advances that come about because of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's again, how I, the modern field of gynecology is founded. Is but I, through experimentation on black women. And I think that is why the medical profession has such a complicated relationship with the African American community in this country. Yes. Just one of them. I mean, we have many examples that we yeah. can talk about. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's just one of them. Um, but yeah, it's um, that was a fun conversation about bloodletting. We talked about bloodletting a lot. Well, they were doing it a lot. That's how, I think that's how George Washington actually died, right? I mean, they were just bleeding him and bleeding him and bleeding him. And it, uh, I don't know why they thought that was a good, I can't even imagine why they thought that was a good idea. I don't know. But that's what they were doing. And, you know, so in Benjamin Rush's case, so many of his patients end up dying who may have, if they had just left them alone, they may have Mm -hmm. been able to beat the odds because you know, of course, yellow fever has a high death rate, but being bled to death while you're sick also has an even higher death rate. So he's able to rehab his, you know, his, his reputation is definitely rehabbed a little bit later. And and again, we've got colleges of medicine named after him. He's got statues and stuff, but like in his time period, he was a very controversial figure and the local newspapers just lambasted him. Like this guy's a freaking murderer. Alexander Hamilton hated him. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's enough for today. I say. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so come back next week. Listen to part two. Um, should be fun. I mean, entertaining, maybe not fun. <laughs> maybe fun's not the correct word. I don't fun. know. It's not fun. Um, but next time, I mean, we start to get vaccines developed. Actual vaccines yeah. yes, are going to be part of the story next time. Yeah, there's an actual smallpox um, vaccine that's developed. Right. So. Um, germ theory, all of that starts to get developed, which is more, it's, it's a more recognizable modern medicine. Yeah. Well, until next time, I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining. Thank mm-hmm. you.